the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Each man's life touches so many other lives. When he isn't around, he leaves an awful hole, doesn't he? Welcome to What a Life with Paul Batura. Paul is a best-selling author, writer, Fox News contributor, and vice president of communications at Focus on the Family. This is a show about the extraordinary value of every life. It's a show about movers, shakers, and culture shapers. And now, here's your host, Paul Batura. Well, hi, everybody, and thanks, Dr. Bill, for that introduction. You know, it's good to be back with you again this week, and I appreciate you joining me. You have a lot of choices and a limited amount of time. Now, we don't take your listenership for granted. Uh, special thanks to Salem Media uh, for giving voice and flight to this program. Now, earlier this summer, my family and I were in Boston for a vacation. Now, I've run the marathon there a few times, but I've never really tackled it uh, tackled the city as a tourist. Now, one of the places on our list to see was the home of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, the famous poet. Now, our family had loved the movie last year called I Heard the Bells, which is all about the composition of the famous Christmas song that Henry wrote. Uh, if you haven't seen it, put it on your list for this coming Christmas. It would be a good streaming uh, movie. Uh, but Henry Longfellow once said, and Henry Longfellow was from Boston, he said, a single conversation across the table with a wise man is better than 10 years of merely reading books. Well, in so many ways, that's what the show is intended, uh, intended to accomplish. It's a conversation across the table. We're seeking out wise people who have a story to tell and whose lives have something to teach. Well, today we're talking with a man who fits that bill. His name is Gary Bauer, and he's someone that I've admired for decades and whom the social conservative movement and families everywhere are deeply indebted to. Gary is the president of American Values. It's a fantastic organization that promotes, among other things, life, marriage, family, faith, and freedom. Gary is also senior vice president of public policy at the James Dobson Family Institute, also known as JDI. I'm going to date myself here, but I remember waiting eagerly for Gary's faxes every afternoon. They now come via email. If you don't get them, you should. Uh, but And they're just as welcome, though, and they're packed with his signature wisdom, his insight, analysis, and perspective on the day's events. They may even come earlier in the day. At least that's my perception uh, than I used to get them in years past. But, Gary, thanks for taking the time to join me today. Well, it, it's my pleasure, and it, it's a very kind of you to uh, make those remarks and to mention that end-of-day report. Uh, I know you've got a series of things you want to talk about, but... Uh, let, let me just quickly mention that uh, uh, when I was working with Dr. Dobson previously, many decades ago, actually, uh, I was doing a memo to him every day to keep him posted on what was going on in Washington. And he uh, said to me, you know, Gary, you ought to send this to everybody on your list. And I go, really? <laughs> and he goes, yes, people would love that. And uh, so I ended up doing it, and then it ended up being a, a tremendous asset. But I, I've thought back on it many times. I mean, Dr. Dobson had this instinctive uh, understanding of the value of something I was writing that I didn't even have, which is probably why he was able to build multi-million organizations like Focus on the Family. And uh, I was more of a small entrepreneur, but nonetheless, it's uh, 
it, it's really a, been a report that has meant a great deal to my work in Washington. Wow, I did not know that was the origin, that it started as a memo to Dr. Yeah. Dobson. That's, uh, that's fascinating. I mean, you obviously put a lot of effort into that. I mean, it, it's probably a lot easier to do now than it was at the beginning, but uh, how, how do you do that? What's the process? Um, obviously, probably has changed over the years, but what's the process for pulling that together? I think our listeners would find that interesting. Well, I, uh, I, I've tried over the years to, to get somebody to help me to write it, and this is probably indicative of a, a character or personality flaw of mine. I, I'm never satisfied with how folks uh, do it trying to write it for me. So it is something over the years I've continued to do on my own, e- even when it's been often nearly impossible or certainly inconvenient. But I, I get up very early around 5 a.m., and I... I start accessing news sources uh, as I'm uh, doing a morning walk, and uh, and then as the day goes on, I, I set aside uh, several hours where I, I call people on Capitol Hill and in the media and in various places in government to try to get some inside information that might not be in the news headlines. And then as the day goes on, I um, I try to mold that in a way that would be of interest to folks in uh, heartland America. And I put my own thoughts to it about whether this is uh, what I'm telling them is something they should be happy about or excited about or something they need to be praying about and worried about. Um, And you're right, it does tend to go out a little earlier uh, just because of other things that I have to do. Uh, But um, uh, that's basically the process I follow. And, and, uh, as, as I said, well, over the years, it's been interesting. There are quite a few people in Congress and in state legislatures and uh, even people in government positions in other countries around the world that, that get the report every day. Yeah, well, this speaks to your in, your insight, your instincts, I suppose, too, that uh, I liken your report a lot to the Wall Street Journal editorial page, which, you know, unlike the rest of the paper, seems to be a day ahead of most people. It, you know, they tend to... Uh, if, just my perception of things is that you write about things that the regular mainstream media eventually, if they ever do, catch up days later. So if if someone is listening and wants to get that report, just uh, AmericanValues.org, is that how they can sign up uh, for it? That'll do it, or uh, I think the official uh, address is our, O-U-R, ouramericanvalues.org. Uh, great, great. Well, I'm talking with Gary Bauer. He's the president of American Values and uh, a longtime friend of the family. Gary, you mentioned Dr. James Dobson, uh, a mutual friend of ours. Uh, obviously, you've known him a lot longer than me. I've had the privilege of serving uh, him for 10 years, the last 10 years of his time at Focus on the Family. Uh, I was his research assistant and yeah. uh, did some writing for him. But to your point, like you, he didn't really like people to write for him. He <laughs> he preferred to put pen to paper. But when um, when I heard that you had joined him in this capacity, this double capacity, since you're continuing to run your organization, I thought, wow, what a perfect uh, full circle uh, matchup. And uh, when I talked to him about it, I just he was effusive about it. Oh. Um, I'm just curious how that all we're, we're going to get to your life and we're going to kind of uh-huh. look back a bit. But since this is the present, I'm just curious, how did that all come about? Well, uh, you know, he and I obviously over the years have, have uh, stayed close and uh, 
uh, we've been periodically in meetings together and, uh, uh, and and then really sort of serendipity or, or probably more likely God's hand was in it. Uh, he and Shirley were invited to uh, a lady's home in Virginia, which is where uh, my wife and I live, uh, for a, a weekend of, uh, of sort of a retreat, um, a little bit of studying the Bible and just spending some good fellowship together. And uh, she invited uh, Dr. Dobson and Shirley, and and also invited Carol and myself, and uh, uh, my wife Carol, and uh, and a couple of other couples. And much to her surprise, we all came. <laughs> and over that uh, couple of days, uh, uh, Dr. Dobson and I were were able to catch up on old times and. He mentioned to me that he was having a problem uh, doing as much in public policy through the James Dobson Family Institute as he wanted to do, and um, we we sort of briefly uh, discussed the possibility of maybe helping him a little bit on on filling that vacuum. But then a few months later, he called me and he said, uh, "Gary, I'm just going to put it on the table. Would you?" Would you be open, you know, staying in Washington, continuing your work, but basically doing all my public policy work? And I prayed about it a little bit, but it, it seemed like a natural closing of the circle uh, since we had been working together for, for such a, a long period of time. Yeah, what a perfect, it does feel like a perfect uh, par- partnering there. And I, I'm not intending this program to turn into a Dr. Dobson tribute, and we have a lot to talk about, but I'm just curious. Uh, how would you characterize him as a man, as a friend, and his impact uh, on the family movement? Uh, you, you know, I, I think all of us, um, including uh, Dr. Dobson and, and many other pro-life and pro-family leaders in Washington, uh, given some of the things that have happened in recent years, there's been a tendency to wonder, gee, did we make a difference? You know, we we lost the marriage battle, unfortunately, in the Supreme Court, and we all see the kind of craziness going on in our culture and our schools. But quite frankly, if you look back at what uh, Jim Dobson did over the decades in starting Focus on the Family, a very small operation uh, with that radio program, and then building it to uh, an organization with a huge footprint. Uh, I, I think that uh, Jim bought America a lot of time. Um, he, he was able to s- uh, slow down some of the, the worst trends that were going on. And I, I think he woke up to a, to a significant extent, the American church, although we're, you know, we're still having this debate on, on uh, what priority should it be for uh, a Christian in any country, but particularly in a free nation, to be an involved citizen, be part of the debate, be in the public square. That's still something being debated in the church. But I I think uh, we're we're a lot further along than we would have been if it wasn't for the dedication of Dr. Dobson. Uh, He is exactly what you see. He's a principled man, a godly man. Uh, He and Shirley rely on prayer regularly uh, for guidance about the decisions they should make. Um, uh, he's guileless. Uh, 
I, when you have a conversation with him, what he tells you is exactly what he's thinking. And uh, I, I can't recall even once where I have felt that uh, he misdirected me or wasn't being completely honest with me. I mean, he's exactly the kind of person that you you could trust your kids to or your money to. And uh, if only we could have more people like that that mm-hmm. we could trust our country to. Mm-hmm. I agree with every word you said, and I love I love your phrase that he bought America more time, because um, I've often thought that it's a bit like say what you will about George W. Bush. We were safe after nine eleven, and you never get credit for what you prevent, you know. And and I think he has done a lot of that. But um, we'll come back to Dr. Dobson, I think, because it's a major part of the arc of your story, Gary. But uh, you weren't born in the Beltway. You obviously didn't come out of the womb in the U.S. Capitol or something. You grew up in Newport, Kentucky. uh, And I think that even had a nickname as being Sin City at some point. Can you tell us a little bit about your childhood? I mean, that has to have been a major formative uh, site for you. Well, it, it was. Uh, you, you've obviously done a little bit of research. Uh, yeah, yes, Newport, Kentucky is right across the river from Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, when I was growing up there, it, uh, it, it was a blue-collar town, a very rough and tough town. Um, it literally, in the 50s and early 60s, uh, Newport was controlled by an organized crime syndicate, uh, out of Cleveland, Ohio, I believe, uh, and uh, they uh, they literally owned uh, the mayor, the city council, uh, even the police department. Um, there was there there were casinos in Newport in the 1950s uh, when gambling in America was only legal in Las Vegas. Wow! And uh, those casinos existed because of of the corrupt control uh, over over the city by the by the crime syndicate. Uh, it, it, oddly, uh, amazingly, uh, just to, to put a fine point on this, people like Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin came to casinos in Newport, Kentucky, to entertain. And people uh, across the river from Cincinnati would uh, pour across the river to go to Sin City and. Uh, partake of all the uh, the things you could do. I was growing up in a blue collar family. My my father was uh, a maintenance man for part of his life, a sort of a, a, a skilled janitor, also a truck driver at times. Um, he uh, he he had served in world in World War Two in the in the Marines, and that had a profound effect on his life. Uh, unfortunately, he was uh, an alcoholic. Um, he had what today we would call a, an anger management problem. His mm. nickname was Spike. Uh, so I, I grew up in an interesting household. Um, it was my grandmother that um, that came to our house every Sunday and and took me to church because my you know my father would often uh, be on a binge drunk on the weekend and uh, my mother would be exhausted from dealing with that. So. That's how I, I first uh, got introduced to a, a real Christian faith at the, at the First Baptist Church in, in Newport, Kentucky. Um, and it was also in Newport that 
uh, as a young man, uh, a group of businessmen and, and church leaders, pastors, got together and formed a group called the Committee of, of 500 uh, to try to save Newport uh, from the crime syndicate, and that led to a whole lot of things, including uh, my interest in politics and government. Mm. Wow. I tell you, there's a common theme that I see in these interviews of this, on this show is that pastors, grandparents, they play such a, a oversized role in people's lives. And you're one more example of that. I'm curious, Gary, based on your the challenging home life with your father and his addiction, you know, people have said that you seem unafraid of conflict and confrontation. And I'm, and I'm curious... Do you think some of that is born out of your upbringing that you were surrounded in some ways by a rather contentious home life? I, I, I do think uh, that, that there was uh, an element of that um, in, in uh, my, my tendency to uh, in, invite a fight uh, if I think it's uh, ne- necessary to defend the values that, that we believe in. Um, I mentioned it was a tough, a tough city, and uh, I, I'm not a big guy, uh, and uh, so going to school in that city was uh, was you know an adventure. I, I guess would be the best way to put it. Uh, and uh, so I, I learned to physically defend myself. Uh, but then I, you know, in spite of my father's alcoholism, he was a, a patriot. Uh, he loved America, and uh, he he often would uh, drive home that you know a man stands up for what he believes, and uh, it made it clear that that you know he hoped I would do that, and uh, so I, I think all of those things together you know probably led to uh, uh, the the style I've brought to the debate over the years. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, what about uh, your heroes growing up? Who did you admire as a young young kid? In Kentucky, uh, you, you know there were there were uh, uh, pastors uh, uh, in, in the church that I attended. I, I, I remember many Sundays sitting there and uh, and seeing the example of of uh, a, a pastor at the First Baptist Church that was urging us even back then that you know we needed to be involved citizens if we ever wanted our um, our our city to be a place that that uh, you could raise a family in. Mm. I, I also recall that it, it was in that Baptist church that I uh, I, I first really internalized um, the, the the idea of Christian Zionism. Our pastor used to talk about the Jews being covenant people, and uh, told the story, of course, of of uh, Abram um, having a, a meeting with God in the desert and. Uh, and out of that meeting came, uh, you know, I will be your God and you will be my people. He who uh, blesses you, I will bless. He who curses you, I will curse. And uh, I, I took away from that a lifelong mm-hmm. interest in and, and commitment to fighting anti-Semitism as well as uh, the, the United States-Israeli alliance. Um, I met some local businessmen, as I mentioned, in, in this committee of 500, and I, I looked up to them. But I'll, I'll share a quick story, because one of my earliest heroes uh, on, on a larger scene 
um, came into my life in 1964. My my father and I were watching television. It was a presidential election year, and uh, they announced that there was going to be a, a half-hour political air ad uh, on behalf of Barry Goldwater. And my father was sitting, and I were sitting there grousing about <laughs> one of our favorite shows being taken off. Um, and he continued to grouse about it, but I started listening to this guy that was giving a speech on behalf of Goldwater, and I was mesmerized by the speech. He was talking about uh, God's role for America, uh, that the world couldn't remain half slave and half free. It would have to decide between Soviet communism and American constitutional freedom. And when it was all over, uh, I turned to my dad and I said, Hey, Dad, I, I don't think Goldwater's got a chance in the world. Everybody at school says their parents are going to vote against him. But this, this guy that just spoke, this movie actor, what, what's his name, Reagan? And my father goes, Yeah. And I said, uh, That guy's going to be president someday, and I'm going to work for him in the White House. Wow. And, I, you know, there was a, as soon as the words were out of my mouth, I... I didn't even know where they came from. It was a. It was not really a wise thing to say to Spike Bauer, who did who did not suffer fools lightly. And he looked at me and said, "Gary, you're nuts." <laughs> uh, so to put a, a, a bow on that story, um, about a year before he passed away, my father was able to visit me in my West Wing in the White House, my wow. office in the West Wing, and we uh, thought back on that night in our our living room. Well, that prophetic uh, insight is from Gary Bauer. He's the president of American Values. He's talking about uh, President uh, then uh, Governor. Uh, when, I don't know if was he governor. He wasn't. Was he, he governor? Wasn't in 19- governor he yet. wasn't governor in '64. <laughs> but that was the time of choosing speech. That was October 27, 1964. If you haven't seen it or heard it, YouTube it. It's a it's a moving uh, moving message, and obviously the roots of Gary's rise. Gary. Um, how did you choose to go to Georgetown College? That's in Kentucky. And then Georgetown, I don't know, did you feel like you had to go to Georgetown Law School then because you had gone to Georgetown undergrad? But how did that well, come about? Well, one school was uh, Southern Baptist and the other one was Jesuit. And ended up they pretty much uh, banned the same things, even though there's <laughs> theological differences. Uh, Georgetown College uh, in Kentucky uh, was aligned with the Baptist Church, and there were uh, scholarships available uh, through the churches, and I was able to get one of those. It it kept me uh, close to home. It was only a little over an hour drive uh, to Georgetown. It was just about 10 miles away from Lexington. So I could uh, come home if I had to. Uh, to to help my mother um, with with the situation in our household, and it was affordable, uh, so um, I I went there, got got a good education. But as as time passed, and it was clear and clear to me that what I felt the calling to was the law and government. Um, I, I thought, uh, look, I should aim big and. Um, uh, I, I applied. To, I took the, the law school admission test, the LSAT, and did very well on it. And uh, it took a long shot uh, attempt here and applied to, to Georgetown University Law School. Uh, got accepted, and some of the uh, uh, the men that I met in, in that committee of 500 
coincidentally had a scholarship they were offering uh, to uh, young people in Newport, um, and I applied to that and, and ended up uh, getting it, which got me that first year at Georgetown, and then I could uh, build on that to be able to finish on my own. Yeah. Now, I love the fact that a, a, a son of a janitor is able to somehow go to private undergrad and then law school, figure out a way, only in, only in America, I guess, right? Well, you know, when, when, we, uh, when my parents came to see me in the White House, my my father said to me then, uh, what, what a country where uh, Spike Bauer, the janitor's son, can end up working for a president of the United States. And I said, Dad, what a, what a God we serve that could open all those doors to let that happen. Because when I, you know, when I look back at all the things that took place, uh, a, a lot of them were really uh, totally unpredictable, and you really couldn't plan for these things, and yet uh, they, they, in retrospect, seem to fall in place one, one after the other. Yeah. Well, I'm speaking with Gary Bauer. He's president of American Values, and he's with uh, the James Dobson Family Institute as well. Uh, when we come back, uh, there's a lot of ground to cover because we've only gotten through the early years of Gary's, uh, Gary's life and his career uh, to come. I want to talk, Gary, to you about how you met Carol. I think the spouse we meet is probably one of the most important choices we make and the gifts that God gives us. I'd like to hear that story. And then, obviously, your time with uh, the Reagan administration, your time at the Family Research Council, uh, coming up right after these messages. Welcome back. This is Paul Batura. You're listening to What a Life, Lessons from Legends. And the legend we're talking uh, with today is Gary Bauer. Gary is president of the American uh, Values Organization. That is a faith, family, and freedom uh, social policy think tank of sorts in Washington, D.C. He's also with the James Dobson Family Institute. And Gary, when we left off, we were talking about uh, your time at Georgetown Law School and really God's sovereign hand on your life. Uh, you mentioned you know you couldn't have um, scripted or maybe you couldn't have uh, done all the things that you needed to do to get where you went. God clearly directed and, and opened doors for you. Um, I mentioned... And I hear about Carol all the time. You're very uh, deliberate, I think, in mentioning her. She has a great prayer update that you send out that we all appreciate. Um, how did you meet Carol Bauer? Well, uh, we, uh, we met at the Republican National Committee uh, as I was uh, going through law school. Uh, it, it became obvious along the way that I was going to probably have to finish out uh, in the night school because I, I needed to to get a job in, in order to get some income coming in to carry the tuition and and so forth and uh, so I, I got a a job at the RNC doing research and while I was working there uh, Carol got a job um, in in the same area of the Republican National Committee and and as those couple of years passed we we started dating and. Uh, uh, ultimately got married and uh and both uh, of us continued to get promotions at the RNC so it ended up that uh, we we both ended up in leadership positions there yeah. uh and uh you know shared that mutual interest and love in government and politics along with our uh, Christian faith. Ah, that's great. I can relate to that. I met my wife at Focus on the Family. Right? Ah, I've been the last okay. 26 years but one of the the first things she said to me that 
kind of drew me in. Of course, she's beautiful and all of that, but she said she listened to Rush Limbaugh, and I thought, oh boy, if I if I'm lucky enough to find a pretty girl who listens to Rush Limbaugh, don't be dumb, don't miss this one. You know? Yes, it sounds like you're a wise man. <laughs> um, you, Carol, has been you know involved uh, clearly in in your career and has uh, contributed in many ways. Does she? Um, how, how much does she influence you? in uh, your thinking and in your communication and how you prioritize what you talk about? Well, it, it really, I think, as all uh, successful marriages are, it, it's been a partnership all along the way. Uh, Carol is um, uh, a very, very opinionated and cares about the same things that uh, you and I care about, Paul, uh, the sanctity of life and the importance of marriage and the family and uh, the need for uh, moms and dads to be children's first and most important teachers. Um, so it, as this battle has gone on and I've been involved in it, uh, uh, she, she's been there on the good days and, and the bad days. Uh, I don't, I don't want to dwell on the bad days, but I think uh, we, we all see now uh, how mercurial and often nasty the debate is in America. And, you know, we have this phenomena of people being canceled, and you see uh, people being threatened mm. by uh, some on the left, et cetera. Well, Carol and I uh, were going through that very early on when ultimately uh, I, I helped launch the Family Research Council. Uh, all the way back in those years, our family got regular death threats mm. and and, you know, it's the kind of thing where some wives might say, okay, look, uh, you know, I'm with you on this stuff, but this is going too far. But she, she never got cold feet, uh, even when there was a period of time where we literally had to have uh, security at our house 24 hours a day. Wow. And here the left, I thought the left are the tolerant ones, Gary. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it... Uh, there, there's some, you know, there's there's bad people, I guess, in every movement, and uh, are people that have a hard time uh, keeping things in perspective. But uh, I believe, or at least my experience has been, that on the far left, uh, there is a propensity, unfortunately, toward violence uh, that that I think uh, really makes anything that happens among conservatives uh, pale into uh, something pretty minor. Yeah. I mean, we can't dwell on it. We need to be aware of it. But um, tell me how a letter that you wrote to the editor changed the course of your professional life. Well, um, I was, um, uh, I, I read a, a an editorial uh, in uh, what, what was then the evening newspaper. I believe it was called the Washington Star. And um, it, it was attacking uh, Ronald Reagan's of foreign policy views. This was before he had been elected president. And uh, I, as I mentioned earlier, it was his foreign policy views that really inspired me, this need to defeat godless communism. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I wrote uh, a ridiculous letter to the editor, much too long, uh, defending his foreign policy views. And uh, a couple of days later, later I got a... Uh, a call from the editorial board asking, that, you know, was I the Gary Bauer that wrote this letter? And they said yes, and I said yes, and they said, well, it's too long for the letter to the editor column, but we like to, to print it as sort of a guest editorial. 
uh, and and they did. And uh, shortly after that, I, I got a call from the Reagan campaign, whose headquarters was in Northern Virginia, and they uh, told me they would uh, like to have somebody like me in the campaign, obviously at a low level. Uh, and would I be interested in that? And the irony is I had been dropping by the campaign at its <laughs> headquarters for months trying to get in the front door and uh, with no success. But um, once this, they saw this edit, guest editorial, uh, I got an, an offer to, to join the campaign. Wow. I love this. And, and this is a good a directive to people who are listening who, you know, people often say, what can I do? And, and how can the Lord use me? You know, I, I, for aspiring writers, I tell people all the time, write a letter to the editor. I mean, I, that, that's the in e, probably the easiest yeah. place to get published. And uh, here you did that. You took action. That's the key, right? I mean, in our world, uh, we there's people who complain. There's people who moan and groan. And then there are people who actually do something about it. And you did. And uh, here you joined the administration, um, obviously during the campaign and then the, the, the big victory in 1980. Uh, and then you joined the uh, Reagan administration. And, uh, I mean, that must have been heady times for a, a, a new – I mean, you were a law school graduate. You had been a, working for the Direct Mail Marketing Association, I think, right, as a yes. director of government relations. So it's not that you weren't familiar with Washington. But take us inside that that first foray in those early 1980 days. Um, let me ask you this. what was Where were you on March 30th when President Reagan got shot? I had uh, I had been up on Capitol Hill uh, talking with members of Congress on behalf of the administration about uh, some issues, and uh, I was uh, coming back to to what was then referred to as the old Executive Office Building, which is that very ornate building right next to the White House that people probably see fairly regularly when there's a uh, uh, filming going on or, or photos or whatever, and. Uh, uh, and there were a lot of police um, uh, coming in all kinds of directions and uh, heading up uh, uh, Connecticut Avenue. And uh, I was thinking, well, I wonder what's going on. This was way beyond you know a, a crime happening. Uh, I thought, well, perhaps a riot has broken out or whatever. And then I recalled that uh, Reagan was going to, President Reagan was speaking. At, at a hotel in the direction that all these cars were headed. Um, when I got into the old executive office building, my, my office was on the floor that there was also an office for the vice president of the United States. And the elevator opened right across that office. Uh, so when the elevator doors opened and I I, I got out, uh, outside of the vice president's office, there were uh, – uh, two security people with um, uh, basically machine guns, automatic wow. weapons, standing there, and uh, you got something I, is up. Yeah, yes, and I, yeah, there were people uh, coming in and out of offices, and I I heard very quickly that that the president had been shot. So, uh, you know, we know now how close it was to he, he was to being killed, and so. Uh, you know, everything could have changed if, if uh, God forbid, that would have happened. But it was a, a very dramatic period, uh, as you can imagine. Yeah. Now, people uh, who have wonderful, warm memories of Ronald Reagan probably forget that, you know, those early days of the administration, from my reading at least, not everybody got along. I mean, there were, you know, there were kind of uh, true Reaganites, which you would be considered one of. 
And there were people who were kind of like not really on board with all of the Reagan plan. I mean, what was that like for you to try and navigate that uh, in your role, in your position? Uh, you're absolutely right. The White House uh, was divided between uh, folks that were uh, sort of loyal to or answered to one way or another Ed Meese, who was um, a guy that had been with Reagan all the way back in the California years and was sort of head of the folks that wanted Reagan to be Reagan. They didn't want him to trim his sails. They wanted him to be exactly what he was all those years and how he campaigned. But as you'll recall, uh, Reagan surprised a lot of people by uh, picking uh, George H.W. Uh, Bush to be his vice presidential running mate. And when they won, of course, Bush got to bring people in that were loyal to him. Mm. And most of those people answered to uh, Jim Baker, who had been with Bush for many, many years. And so it was a divided White House, and, and uh, th- those divisions, uh, um, uh, you know, all during that time uh, made things a lot more complicated than, than they should have been. Yeah. Now, you spent – we only have so much time. I could talk to you for hours here, but – you um, you spent time there, then you moved into the Department of Education, and uh, you had some challenging days there, of course, with kind of similar philosophical, ideological, uh, even with your boss, right? That, that's right. Let me just quickly uh, uh, tell you that I had a very low-level position in the administration in the beginning, in the... Uh, uh, in the Office of Policy Development, but I had very few responsibilities. And we had a staff meeting one day talking about what priorities were going to be. And I was kind of surprised and a little bit uh, disgusted that I didn't hear anybody in this office talking about the values issues, mm. uh, the sanctity of life, school prayer, uh, tuition tax credits, which Reagan cared deeply about it. It campaigned on, but this office was filled with libertarians, and uh, they weren't really interested in those issues. And I must have physically made a face at the, as the meeting was ending. I, in some way, I showed my disgruntlement, and the head of the office caught me uh, uh, <laughs> in that uh, body language and said, uh, uh, you, do you have a problem? And I, I said, uh, well, I'm, I, I'm a little surprised you are not bringing up these issues. And he kind of laughed. His name was, uh, oh, my goodness, uh, I'm not going to be able to think of his name right now. But uh, he, he said, um, uh, okay, uh, Bauer, that, that's your name, right, Bauer? And I go, yeah. And he goes, okay, those are your issues. And the meeting breaks up. And I went back to my office. I thought, those are my issues. What does that mean? <laughs> So I called Ed Meese, and I described the event for him, and he said, yeah, that is a a little unusual. Here's what I recommend, Gary. Um, You should start writing memos to the president on those issues and just put them in the system, and let's see what happens. So I found that advice shocking. I I said, "You, you think I should write memos directly to the president? Sure, let's see what happens. So I started doing that, and I wrote them on these issues, and literally for six months, I heard nothing. I would write the memos, I'd put them in the system, and they seemed to disappear. And then one day I came into the office, and there was a message that White House personnel wanted to talk to me, and I went to to that office, and they said, uh, the president loves those memos. Uh, He wants to nominate you to be deputy undersecretary in charge of the budget at the Department of Education. And that was a $14 billion budget. Mm. And... uh, 
uh, Reagan was not that happy with the Secretary of Education. It was a guy named Terrell Bell, and I was sent over there. I had to go through Senate confirmation, but I was supposed to get Secretary Bell under control and uh, push some of these issues which related to education while I was there. Wow. Well, boy, that, that's leadership, Gary. I mean, to speak up and to have the courage to talk about that and to raise the issue and then to be given that favor. I mean, those of us who are big homeschool advocates uh, have you and your colleagues to thank for. I mean, those were the early days of the homeschool movement uh, and uh, where it was almost threatened to uh, be illegal. And um, Mm. I know you and Dr. Dobson connected on that issue and the, the famous stories of melting down the switchboard and all of that from constituents. Obviously, there's you, you went back uh, from the Department of Education, went back to the White House for the last two years of the administration. Um, you were with Ronald Reagan on a regular basis. Um, not so low anymore, obviously. You, got, you didn't work elbow to elbow. But what was that like to be in, in the Gipper's presence on such a regular basis? Uh, it, seriously, it was uh, – I, I never got used to that. I, I, you know, I would drive into work every day and uh, – uh, I had a parking place right on the White House grounds, uh, uh, right next to the West Wing. Uh, every Monday, there were about uh, a dozen of us that had an off-the-record lunch with the president where we could bring up and talk to him about anything that we wanted. Um, I, um, I I sat in on cabinet meetings. I flew on Air Force One. Uh, it was just an extraordinary experience to have. Uh, I, you know, I, in, in some ways, uh, well, something like that defines your life. And I, I always felt particularly blessed and privileged, uh, to be able to serve, uh, in, in the Reagan administration. Um, one of the first times I got to make a, a presentation to Reagan, uh, I, it was a big deal for me. I, I sure. almost didn't sleep at all the night before, and I, I was, uh, uh making this presentation to him in the cabinet room. And quite frankly, he looked a little distracted. It was a nice spring day, and uh, <laughs> you could see the out into the Rose Garden, and I, I wasn't sure he was listening. And I was wrapping up my presentation, and I said, uh, not only that, Mr. President, but the polling data shows, and his head jerked up, and he looked at me, and he leaned forward, and he said, just a minute, don't you ever come in here and cite a poll to me. You give me your best advice on what we ought to do for the country, and the polls will take care of themselves. Wow. Well, uh, that's what I felt like at the moment. <laughs> I uh, went back to my office, kind of sucking on my tie, but I, uh, I, I, uh, I, it was also a uh, you know, reassurance that I was working for exactly the man yeah. that I thought I was. Well, and that clearly influenced you, Gary, because you know, I've got papers all around me here from, you know, I, I read your. Um, a speech where you announced your decision to run for president in 2000. I guess it was probably 1999 when you announced that. But here's a line from that um, announcement. You said, I don't care what the polls say. I will never sacrifice one American child, born or unborn. You can count on it. Mm. I, I mean, that, that re- I wish you could replay those remarks. Uh, it's prescient. I mean, what you said during that announcement, you were talking about how uh, you know we have a society where we're no longer no longer telling many of our kids that they were created by God, that liberty comes from Him, that virtue matters, and death is never an option. Uh, I mean, all of this is unfortunately. I mean, these problems have only gotten worse. 
but you had your finger on the pulse of what uh, we were facing as a nation. Well, th- thank you, Paul. I, uh, it was the reason I ran. I, I, um, you, you know, I, some people have occasionally accused me of being delusional, but I never was so delusional that I thought I was going to end up being president. But I did think that these issues uh, needed more attention, even in the party that I had made my political life in, the Republican Party. And I, I felt that there was too much of an emphasis in that party on, you know, sort of economic policies that uh, Wall Street would want, uh, which I'm, you know, I'm all for free market capitalism, but that there wasn't enough emphasis on the other investments that take place in a country, which is the investments that take place at the kitchen table when parents who bring children into the world raise those children with the right values and explain to them uh, the nature of liberty and where it came from, which is not government, but from God. And so I wanted to deliver that message in those Republican primaries and uh, did the best I could to do that. Well, you did very well, and you clearly resonated with a large segment of the population. I mean, what people don't probably remember, you know, they running for president is a huge deal, and of course, only one emerges the victor. But I think you were polling regularly ahead of, I mean, people who had national platforms, people like Alan Keyes, Pat Buchanan, Dan Quayle, you know, former vice uh, president. Um, here you were, you were doing better than they were. And I think it's somewhat force of personality, but it was because of the issues that you represented, that you brought forward and, and continue to do on a regular basis. Well, I, uh, I, I even surprised myself a little bit in some of those polls. I, uh, of course, raising money was very difficult. Uh, you know, it's, uh, we haven't talked about this issue, but along with everything else, of course, we've got what's going on with communist China right now. And you, you know, during the, uh, the, the 2000s, uh, communist China was given most favored nation trading status, and a lot of American communities ended up being decimated by that because our factories couldn't compete with Chinese factories. I, uh, I bring it up because the other day I was uh, going back and looking at one of the presidential debates, and George W. Bush and I got in a big argument over this. He was in favor of giving China most favored nation status, and I was adamantly opposed to it. And I said to the governor respectfully, uh, you, you know, the trade with China is not going to change China. It's not going to make them free. It's much more likely to change us. And I think, mm-hmm. unfortunately, that has come true, too. Yeah. You know, Gary, when I think of you, and this sounds like I'm flattering you, but this is, I, again, I admire you, and you've, you've, you've proven this is proven to be true. I don't know. I'm a, I love the movie Gettysburg. I don't know if you've seen it. It goes yes. back a ways. But there's a great scene where General Buford, who was played by Sam Elliott, you know, that great deep uh, voice, you know, what's for dinner. Yes. Yes. But he's, he's talking about the, he's looking out on the battlefield. It's the day before the battle. And he says, I've never seen anything as brutally clear as this is mm-hmm. as if I can actually see the blue troops in one long, bloody moment. Uh, it's almost as it's already done, already a memory. Uh, you know, your career has been marked by that, whether it's writing about children at risk with Dr. Dobson in 1990, uh, running for president, uh, running the FRC, Family Research Council, um, and to, to today. I mean, you're, you're the guy like Dr. Dobson used to describe with the flags at the end of the road that's washed out warning people. Um, what, what do you see uh, as the way forward? Uh, and the, it's a long answer would be required here. We only have a minute. But what's the best way forward for those of us who are in the good fight? 
Well, Paul, we all know at the end, you, you know, in the big picture, we win. There's no question about that. Every every uh, knee will bend and every head will bow eventually. But I, I'd like America to be around in the interim, and uh, a lot of de- generations have made a lot of sacrifices, and I, I, I'm still hoping and praying that our children and grandchildren will be able to enjoy all the blessings of liberty that we have. But to do that is is not going to be easy. I, I I don't think we can talk the other side into seeing the light. Although we should keep trying, uh, I think we face hard times. I I think the the constitutional republic we've been given is hanging by a thread, and unless the church wakes up um, and and joins with other like-minded Americans of all faiths, um, as, as well as maybe some that. Uh, haven't uh, had a, uh, an awakening from a faith standpoint yet, but are, are willing to defend the idea of uh, of this country. Uh, we're we're going to experience something that none of us want to experience. So I I think it's going to require us to you know continue to pray, continue to go to church, but we've got to get out of the pews and get in the public square. Uh, we may not be interested, some of us in government, but government is interested in us. And they're not going to let us just go off on our own and uh, do what we want to do uh, and teach our children what we want to teach. As long as we exist, we will be a threat that, to those who want to turn America into a sort of uh, socialist, uh, secular nation. And uh, we're, we're going to have to use every ounce of strength we have uh, to make America a shining city on a hill again. Yeah, that's a sober word, but a good good word. And uh, Gary Bauer, president of American Family Values, so great to talk with you today. To find more about Gary, OurAmericanValues.org. He has an upcoming event. If uh, you've never been to it, it's worth your time. It's the Pray, Vote, Stand Summit. It's being held September 15th to 17th at the Omni Shoreham Hotel in Washington. Great guests, um, Dr. Ben Carson, Governor DeSantis, Riley Gaines, who we all admire, who's uh, standing up and... uh, uh, speaking out on behalf of female athletes who are being uh, discriminated against. But, Gary, thanks so much for joining us, and I hope our paths cross again soon. It's a pleasure to be with you, Paul. God bless you, and it's been a real pleasure to be on your show. Thank you. Thanks for listening to What a Life with Paul Batura. Let him know what you're thinking. Follow Paul on Twitter at Paul Batura, or you can reach out to him on email at paul at paulbatura.com. Most importantly, live a life that emulates the admonition of the Apostle Paul, whose teachings are the inspiration for this show. Writing to believers at Philippi, Paul urged them, Brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. We'll see you next time on What a Life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.